Good morning. Uh, my name's Tony, and I'm going to read the passage from Ecclesiastes that Benjamin will be preaching this morning. It's uh, all of chapter 3. It's on page 519 in the Pew Bibles, and you can read along on the screen as well. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is God's word. Thank you, Tony and Jeff. Pray with me one more time. Lord, we sang moments ago that when we doubt it, when we doubt it, would you remind us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made? 
that you are an artist, a potter. Lord, I pray that we would receive your shaping this morning. That you would have your way among us, conforming us into the image of your son, Jesus. And that in all these things that we do, as we pray, as we preach, as we sing, as we gather, as we fellowship, as we laugh, as we cry, that you would be conforming us to the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So years ago, I'm, I'm on a stage at this giant youth gathering. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a speaker at this thing. Um, I was just there as one of the youth leaders. Uh, my buddy was a youth pastor in college for another church, and he, I'd volunteer with that church and help out, and he took us all to this huge youth gathering. There's people, big stage, outdoors, um, gathering sort of thing, and my buddy knew the, the speaker, and the speaker had this prop, and he needed some guys on the stage to hold the prop. It's this giant wood pole thing. It's kind of strange. I actually have no idea what the prop was because I was so distracted from holding the thing. Uh, but, but, but anyway, I'm, I'm up there, and we have to hold this pole. That's my job. When, it, when it's time to hold the pole, me and these five other guys, we're going to hold, hold this thing, okay? However, there's a problem. Um, it feels like, at least to me, where I'm holding it, so like the front rows right here, that it's leaning. Um, and I am super stressed because I'm worried, like, I'm like, CNN is flashing my eyes, like, you know, youth tragedy, pole falls on front row of kids at gathering. So, so I'm, I'm just like holding it as tight as can be. And, and whether I started to run out of strength or whether I just thought, I, I don't know, I've got to let up and rest for a second, I start to let up a little bit and surprisingly, it gets easier. <laughs> and you can probably already see where this is going. Then as time went on, it, I let up some more and it got easier and easier. And all of a sudden, I, and again, you may have realized this already, which took me longer to realize in the moment, is that all five of us were all pushing on each other. <laughs> we're sitting here poor, like terrified and like, and, and, and I, at least I was terrified because my, my side was going to go towards the audience. Anyway, as we all let up, it all got a lot less stressful. <laughs> And thankfully, no, uh, no children were hurt during the making of this sermon illustration. Um, now, somewhere in there, there's a lesson from this book of Ecclesiastes. The, the preacher in this book of Ecclesiastes has many truths that he wants us to learn, lessons that he also had to learn. And, and one of them, one of those lessons might go like this. If we don't rest in the goodness and the sovereignty of God over every season of our lives, then at best we're going to be restless and at worst we'll go mad. The preacher wants us to know that there are some things that no matter how hard you push against them, they won't move. And here's the important point. They won't move because they're fixed by God. So that, that's where we're headed. That's where Ecclesiastes 3 is headed. But before we talk about all that, I, I want to do a few reminders. Some of you are new to church. Every week we have a few people visiting, and we're thankful for that. Some of you may have not been at one or both of the previous sermons. And, and even if you were at both of those, a reminder might be helpful because the book of Ecclesiastes tends to be so foreign to us. So just for a few moments, I'll kind of some... Um, 
preliminary thing. So the opening lines of this book of Ecclesiastes, we, we meet an author, or as he calls himself, the Koheleth. That's the, the Hebrew word. We translate it in the version we're using here as the preacher. And we're told that this preacher is a son of King David, chapter 1, verse 1. So he could be any son, a son of King David, or a grandson, or a great-great-great-great-grandson, because sometimes that word can mean son of just can just mean a descendant of. But it would seem, it would seem that the preacher in this book who most fits the description of someone who's wise and wealthy and self-indulgent, a, a prince, is not just any son, but the specific son named Solomon, immediate son of David. So perhaps Solomon is the preacher, the one who wrote the book, or perhaps, this might also be the case, that it wasn't Solomon who wrote the book, but it was rather someone later who wrote the book as, well, in the way that Solomon could have written the book. Or maybe the way Solomon, we should say, should have written the book. I say that because the book of Ecclesiastes is a book of repentance from one father to a son. At the end of the book, the preacher, this is in chapter 12, verse 10, he uses the phrase, my son, my son. And then he follows that with his last bit of instruction, advice. And that phrase, my son, casts the whole book in this fatherly sort of light. The phrase means, as someone put it to me recently, we were talking about the book, you might picture this book as coming from Grandpa Solomon. He's still on the throne, and he knows he's going to die soon, and as he looks his son in the eyes, a son who's about to rule instead of him, Grandpa Preacher says, boy, that ain't it. So someone shared it with me. As he described the book of Ecclesiastes, boy, that ain't it. By what he means, you can try this, and you can try that, and you can try pleasure and fame and money and wisdom and property and fill your life full of all of the things we might fill our lives full with. And you can go as far in any direction as you want. You can walk the world forever till your shoes are filled with blood. To use the language from the song we sung that first week, we began preaching this book. But boy, let me tell you from experience, that ain't it says the preacher. To use the words from Pastor Greg's wonderful sermon last week, we, Greg was visiting us. He's going to be part of the Midtown Church, and he preached a wonderful sermon. And it, but the language, the metaphor he used is that Solomon, as though he's tilted his ladder against every building that is not God, and he's climbed to the top, and from the top he looks back down and says, there's nothing up here. Well, that's a review. This morning, the preacher takes us further into his argument. It's going to build on what he's already said. As I said before, in chapter 3, he's going to show us that we must rest in the sovereignty and goodness of God over every season of our lives, lest we become restless or at worst we go mad. So we'll talk about our seasons We'll talk about God's sovereignty. The preacher begins with a poem about seasons. It's a poem 
Probably if any part of the book of Ecclesiastes is familiar to you, it's, it's this one. It's made famous from the 1960s song from the birds, the band called the birds. It was written before that, but then they put it to a different tune and, and made it famous, turn, 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 for everything is season. And the lyrics from that song come directly from Ecclesiastes 3. Let me reread the poem that begins this chapter. First eight verses, 14 back and forth couplets, 28 seasons. Chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. There are a few ways we could go wrong as we look at the lyrics here about the seasons. We could go wrong by lifting them out from this chapter and singing them and kind of making them mean whatever we would want them to mean. Instead, we need to, we need to see what these words, these poems, this lyric, these lyrics mean within this chapter, within this book, and within the context of the scripture. So that's what we need to do. But Another mistake we could make is that we could simply take these words to be activities that we're invited to pick and choose, right? We pick the ones we want more of and we pass on those we want less of. I want a little more laughter, a little more building up, not so much tearing down. Today I'd like to dance, but tomorrow, since it's a Monday, maybe I'll make war. I don't know, (laughs) right? You know, just pick and choose, the seasons, the way you'd like to have them, where we'd like to have them. That's not the way to receive this poem. The preacher is saying that under the sun, the seasons will come and the seasons will go and you can only receive them. No more than you can stop the ice of winter or the scorch of summer, neither can you create the seasons of your life. You can't make yourself born any more than you can resist, ultimately, at least, your death. Now, we have some choice about how much we want to laugh or how much we want to mourn, but in general, the preacher is saying that even here, these seasons are dictated to us, and we have only to respond in a way that accords with the season that we're in. So this poem is inviting us to know that seasons exist, to know that seasons change, and to know that whatever season we're in, to live in accordance with it. You don't fight the seasons, so to speak. That's what he's saying. You don't wear a winter coat at the beach in the summer, nor do you wear, unless you're strange, a swimsuit in a blizzard. You don't laugh and dance at a funeral, and you don't mourn when a new baby is born. We know that the seasons exist. We know that the seasons change. And whatever season we're in, we live in accordance with it. That's, that's not all, but that's, 
part of what he's saying here. And we see that because of the context. Look at verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them, them, these people, us, these people who live within seasons, nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Do good. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That's a key phrase, gift, hand of God, gift of God, fear of God. Everything the preacher has said so far is true. Under the sun, all our best efforts are like building sandcastles at low tide. Tomorrow they're going to be washed away, and that's true. But that doesn't mean, he's starting to say now, that those sandcastles don't matter, nor that we can't enjoy them. If, his argument he's building on things here, if... We do not force our greatest efforts in life to bear the weight of eternity. If we don't do that, if, if this achievement, this event, this pleasure, this money, this property, this thing, this relationship, if we don't force them to bear the weight of eternity, if our best efforts don't have to be the thing that make or break our life, then we can enjoy them for what they are. This is what I meant when I said in the first sermon that the, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's trying to lower our expectations so that he can save our expectations. Or better, save us. If I believe my sandcastles have to last forever, then as I live under the sun, to use a phrase from the book, I'm going to be really disappointed. But if I know that they don't have to last, and if I can receive each moment from God, I can build castles and enjoy them and build them with the people I love. It's not that they're meaningless. We just have to find their meaning in the right context, with the right weight put upon them. I'll illustrate this another way. Maybe some of you will be able to relate this experience of enjoying the moment and not wasting the moment. I, I love when my parents come to visit. We, we, we love that, they, uh, or we, when we go to them. I used to live in the Midwest, and um, they, they used to live in the Midwest, and then I moved here, and then they were still there, and, and we didn't see them very much, and now they, they've moved down to Richmond, and so we can see them much more often, and it's great. And when we get together, uh, let's just say we enjoy good food together often. My father's an amazing... Um, at cooking meat on the grill. And so sometimes he'll do that for us. He, he goes to the back of Costco and like, you know, finds those things that I would not even look at, let alone buy, because they're, they're way too expensive. But he, he buys them, he brings them home, he sees them, and he makes them for us, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. Sometimes he brings us to restaurants that we would not normally go to, or at least we would not go to with the frequency and density across four days, um, that when... He, you know, when he's taking us there, it's, it's, it's wonderful. But, but, but here's the thing. When we get together, and this may be like some of you, especially when we go down there to Richmond and other brothers and sisters get together and it's all this big, happy get-together, we can get to the place where we'll stop enjoying one meal and begin thinking and talking and planning about the next meal. <laughs> okay, okay, this is a good lunch and all that, but what are we going to do later today? 
And what are we going to do after dinner? What are we going to eat for dinner? And then what are we going to do for dessert? And then what will we do for breakfast the next day? And who has to leave when? And when are we going to do all these things that are not the thing we're doing now, but the thing that we're going to do later? Let's think about that. Maybe your family does this with meals. Maybe you're not doing this with meals, but with your life. There's a way to constantly wish away the moment and to look past it to some place in the future, some oasis. The preacher is telling us through this poem, that's not wise. There's an author I like who has said, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. The idea is that we, we, we can trick ourselves into believing that we're using our time well, but if what we're doing at every moment is wishing away the present moment, longing for something else, longing for different days, longing for something better out there in the future, then if that's how we're spending our days, what we're actually doing is wasting our years. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives, she wrote. You may want to win the championship and get the award and get the scholarship, get the degree, score the big job, marry the right person, get the kids out of diapers, then get them into the right school, get them through school, get them out of school, out of the house, empty nest, finish the career, get the retirement, go on the big trip, and then spend your days in a way that you become one who spends your life constantly discontent. The preacher wants you to enjoy as much as you can, as much as you can. Because not all these things come to us equally in our ability to enjoy and receive them. But as much as we can, seeing from the hand of God, he wants us to enjoy the season we're in. So all that's true, but, but as we start funneling, okay, but those are true things, Solomon, the preacher. You're telling us true things, but, but what are the main things? Here's, I think, the main thing the preacher's poem about the changing of seasons is designed to do. The change of seasons bring us to a place of humility. There's another famous poem. This, this poem's not in the Bible. Some of the lines might be familiar to you. It's called, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. It's a poem about fighting while there's still time even in and through old age and on into death. A line in the poem that gets repeated says, rage, rage against the dying of the light. I can respect that poem for what it might mean. We should fight for the good. That's the word that the preacher uses in verse 12. Do good. Do good in your, whatever season you're in, do good. We should fight for the good. We should fight in every season for joy and for love and for saving marriages and raising kids and being active in our singleness and serving the world and doing good in our careers and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, on the other hand, to rage, rage against the dying of the light is to rage against the inevitable. The author of that poem died 70 years ago. And whether he lived well to the end or not, the light died. Again, this should bring us, this is, this is what Solomon is doing here. It should be bringing us to a humility in each season of life. 
It's the point the author makes later in the chapter. Let me read verse from 16 to the end of the chapter, but let me just read 18, 19, and 20. I said in my heart, this is the quest language of the book. He's going to pursue different things. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts. For all this is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and the dust all return. This is stark, jarring, provocative, even, we might say, striking language, especially to a Jewish audience. In the book of Genesis, we're told that men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. This means that you and I were, were, were special, fearfully, wonderfully made, we sang. David wrote Psalm 139. Indeed, humans in the same cluster of passages were told that we have dominion over the animals and over the earth. We're to subdue it, cause it to thrive under our rule and reign. So when the preacher says that in some respect dogs and humans go to the same place, that's provocative language. It could almost feel like the preacher is going against the rest of Scripture. Except that same part of Genesis at least nearabouts, tells us that humans are also from dust and to dust will return. Adam, chapter 2, is made from dust and then in chapter 3 we read this, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Genesis three nineteen. This means that we should live with humility before the seasons. We may be able to wear a jacket in the winter, use an umbrella in the spring, and plant our crops, and watch them grow in the summer, and harvest them in the fall. We can respond to each season, even enjoy them as much as they could be enjoyed, but we don't stop our trips around the sun. There's a time to be born and a time to die, and we have to live with humility before the seasons, which is really a way to say something more profound. The, the preacher's saying something more profound than live with humility before the seasons. The preacher is not so much writing poems and preaching sermons that we would all have humility before the seasons, so much as we would have humility before God as the one who orchestrates the seasons. One of the things we have to decide as we read this book is what to make of this preacher. Is he a madman who only sees the worst parts of life? Can the preacher only see what is being done under the sun? 30 times he uses that phrase. Or does the preacher see more? I tend to think that the preacher in this book knows what he's doing. Because while the preacher may say some pretty stark, provocative, even striking things to get our attention, he also says some very warm, very encouraging things. And not just at the end. 
That's one take on this book is that there's the preacher and then there's this narrator who compiles it later. And and maybe there's some truth to that that we could learn that he does say more positive, warm, concluding things at the end. But I think those things that are said at the end are also strategically threaded throughout the book. And let me draw your attention to a few of them. Look at some of the statements the author makes even here in this chapter about the sovereignty the goodness of God, that sovereign language is to rule and reign. It's king language. It's behold our God language. Verse 9 and 10 and 11. What gain is the worker from his toil? We're toiling. We're working. We're talking about God's work here in a second. Verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Look down at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. It's a key word in the epilogue, the chapter 12. Fear, that's worship language. It's to live before God with reverence and awe and wonder and joy and humility The kind of God that Solomon believed in was the kind of God who is absolutely sovereign. He rules, he reigns, he does whatever he wants to do, he does, and it lasts forever. God, if he wants to, when he makes sandcastles, they don't get washed away. That, of course, would be terrifying if God were not also good. The preacher also believes in a God who makes all things beautiful in its time. A time to kill and a time to mourn, a time to tear away, and a time to lose, a time for all the hard and all the good. The preacher believed that God was in all of that. And he was making it beautiful. That's what he believed. But what? What do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe about God? Is God doing this or is he not? If you don't believe God is both sovereign and good, you'll be restless and you'll go mad. But God is good. God is wise. God is strong. God is faithful. God is making everything beautiful in its time. And if you believe that, then you can rest. You'll find contentment in a world that knows nothing of contentment. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul. He wrote to the church in Philippi. We call it the letter Philippians. He wrote it from jail. He wasn't in Philippi. He was writing to them, but he was writing from jail. And he says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Here's season. I'm learned whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do, and now this is the famous verse we always lift out, but here's what he's saying. I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. When I believe God is making all things beautiful in his time, I can be content and whatever measure of joy I can find, I can find it because I believe something about God. And if you have this same faith, you can know this same commitment, contentment, excuse me. Pinterest is the social media platform for beautiful things. 
Beautiful people, beautiful recipes, beautiful houses, beautiful pets, beautiful home projects. And when people try to make these beautiful Pinterest things, sometimes they don't go very well. Maybe some of you have experienced this, and there's this whole kind of internet category search for Pinterest fails. If you Google Pinterest fails, you're just going to get this wonderfully beautiful stream of Pinterest fails, and they tend to be very funny. And I, just for your viewing pleasure, grabbed a few of them for you. So, Valerie, would you? We're just going to go through a couple of these, so you can tell which one they were trying to make here—the Cookie Monster. Uh, you have to let the yeah, and then okay, that one didn't go very well as well. And then this was not a cake, but um, yeah, that it's funny because it's real, right? You're laughing because like yes, some of your parents have been there. Cookie Monster, the lamb, the, the, the pumpkin, whatever that is. I don't know. We thought, let's put a kid in a pumpkin. They'll love this. They will love this. It will be funny. Sometimes our lives look like this. I will tell you that Grandpa Solomon, he felt like this. His life was a Pinterest fail. His kingship was a Pinterest fail. He started out so good. And he ended so poorly. His only hope was that God would make all things beautiful in his own time. And maybe even as the people of God have been reflecting on and thinking on and preaching on this sermon for the last 3,000 years, maybe in a small way, God is even making through Solomon's mess something less messy, something beautiful. That's who God is. God makes beautiful things out of messy things, messy people. That's ultimately where the preacher wants us to rest. One pastor put it like this. These 28 items in this poem at the start, a time to embrace, a time to sow, tear, cast away, war, peace. They're like ingredients. And if it were up to us, we, we, we might mix the ingredients differently. We might not even want any of the ingredients. Who likes to eat flour? I like sugar, but I don't like to eat just pure sugar, right? Not sugar in the raw, or some like butter, but nobody just eats butter. But together, in the hands of a master baker, he's baking something beautiful in his time. I want to close just reading two passages from the New Testament that speak to this, specifically about the person and work and timing of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul's writing to this church and he says, it's a Christmas passage typically, or at least we think of it that way. Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his, forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, he writes, God's perfect timing. All the sin and all the suffering of the Jewish people, all the working of God in war and peace, prosperity and exile, laughing and dancing, crying and mourning, there came a time called the fullness of time when God sent forth his son. Here's another one, Romans chapter five, we read, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For will one scarcely die for a righteous person, but 
Perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, he says, at the right time. That's good news. The God who Grandpa Solomon believed in tells us to trust that he's the God who comes to experience all the seasons of life, to live under the sun. Jesus Christ lived under the sun to redeem those who were under the sun so that we might become sons. Jesus knew life, he knew death, he knew also resurrection. And in the fullness of time, indeed at just the right time, he will come again. We pray and invite the worship team to come and lead us in song. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, I I don't think you're asking us or this scripture passage is asking us to just put on a happy face. But you are saying that when we believe true things about the universe that you have established, when we believe indeed true things about who you are, we might find ways to be content. So bring us to that place, Lord. Remind us that you are faithful. In Christ's name we pray.